0: Kia ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, New Zealand's Acting Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tene, hekona i purangi tene, e pa ana kinga Sounds of Science. Today on the show we have Brent Bevan, our expert in all things predator-free.
1: Kia ora, Erica. Brent Bevanahoe. I'm with the Department of Conservation looking after the Predator-Free Programme.
0: Fantastic to have you here, thanks for joining us.
1: It's an absolute pleasure.
0: You've just said that you're in Predator-Free, so tell me about your role at Doc.
1: I'm the Director or Programme Manager at the Department of Conservation who sort of owns the Predator-Free Programme, so we got given the responsibility by Government to manage it, create the strategy and make sure it operates effectively as as a whole. So my role is sort of working across government, across organisations to make sure we're all focused on the work we need to do to deliver predator-free.
0: It's a pretty big job.
1: At at times it is very big, but, um, but it's very rewarding as well.
0: So you're like the master of the jigsaw with everything coming to towards Predator Free 2050.
1: I'm not sure I'd use the word master, but yeah, we're sort of like, like the her, the cat herder trying to get everything oh, in yeah, line. To, yeah. um,
0: we'll talk about cats later. Yeah. Um, so how did you get started in the field that you're in?
1: <laughs> it took a very long time. We, um, I'm a very old doc person. I started 25 years ago in DOC and um, started in mainland islands in Te Uruera. And then went to Stewart Island for 16 years. But all that time I'd been managing predators and doing that sort of work. And um, I was in the minister's office when Predator Free got started. And um, when this job became available, I sort of transitioned across and grabbed this, which was a which was a great opportunity.
0: What's Stewart Island like?
1: Stewart Island is lovely. One is of it? my favourite places in the world.
0: Is so. it? Do you have a favourite animal from down there?
1: Uh, well, that's, it's Got lots of animals on there, but I, I do like the fact we, um, we brought kiwi back around the town a few mm. years ago. And I've um, still got my house there. And there's a kiwi that lives in my backyard and goes under our house every now and again. And so I can lie in bed and listening to kiwi snuffling under the house, oh. which, is, which is very cool. So that particular kiwi is my favorite animal.
0: That, that's a good <laughs> response, actually. So, did you study conservation?
1: I did actually, Erica. I went to Waikato University and did a Masters in Behavioural Ecology, and I ended up studying uh, kaka, so in the in the Furunaki Forest, which got me into um, conservation in a general sense. But I was almost wearing a white lab coat and, and going into the lab. I really? I was in a um, program that was looking at um, possums and whether we could disrupt the chemical trail between the uterus and the pouch in possums because they're marsupials the babies come out as about the size of baked beans and they make their way up to the pouch to to finish their growth and if we could disrupt that chemical tri- trail then it would um then they wouldn't be able to make it and it was sort of an you know a contraceptive for possums but um just about 2 months before I to put the white lab coat on to start my career as a lab technician. And, um, the funding got pulled and the whole project fell over. So I I was the only student left standing when they offered me this um, opportunity to look at kaka in the Werenaki Forest. And and I've never looked back. I'm so pleased I don't wear a white lab coat these days.
0: So why is Predator Free important for Aotearoa?
1: Predator Free is immensely important. I, uh, I've spent over 20 years of my career... Uh, implementing the last biodiversity strategy we had, and, and, and we failed. We failed. The biodiversity strategy had a simple goal of reversing the decline, not, not about thriving, not about doing really well, just stopping things going down the gurgler. And, um, and we couldn't even achieve that over 20 years. And one of the main reasons for that is, is this predation of, um, of all these introduced predators that have come here, like possums and stoats and ferrets and weasels and, and the three species of rat. And they're just eating our wildlife out from underneath us. And unless we manage to step change our approach and do something completely different, we're going to lose these things over time. So this is the sort of action you ne- predator free, the sort of action you need to do to deliver um, thriving wildlife.
0: You've talked about the the treadmill of temporary control. Is that what we were doing in the biodiversity strategy, that kind of B A U approach? Whereas now it's a completely different yeah we still them.
1: we still do that and it, and that's really important until we develop the skills and the techniques and the technology to achieve eradication and sustain it at slight scale but um that has been our approach in the past is a treadmill of suppression so we knock we knock things down and we either let them come back up a bit and then knock them down again or we really intensively trap and control continuously but but you're continuously pumping effort into a place and and the, the pest animals respond to that as well. so they, get, um, they learn, they get better, so it just gets harder and harder and harder across time. It's not a long-term option for us really. The, the opportunity ahead of us is to is to really just take that to another level and um, and yet you only have to go to any of our offshore islands where we've achieved eradication to see what what it should look like, what it should feel like, what it should sound like mm-hmm. and then you um, you know that you come back going actually. This is what we need to do it's worth it. across New Zealand. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, or even where we haven't yet eradicated, but somewhere like Rakiura, where you've got a kiwi snuffling under your house.
1: Yeah, we do, but unfortunately, Rakiura is stuffed as well. I, I, I'm so sad when we um, when I go down there. Around the towns, good. The offshore islands are really good. Where we do anywhere in New Zealand where we do predator control, mm-hmm. generally has good um good wildlife, good you know lots of birds. But I remember going across to Doughboy Bay on um, Stewart Island. This is when I really understood we needed to, to, to do something different here. Because I spent two days at Doughboy Bay in one of the remote parts of Stewart Island. I only heard one tui over two days. Mm. And that was not, and it. And I wasn't just counting tui. I mean, of all the native birds I could hear, yeah. that was all I ran into in the bush in two days. And it was just, they're just gone.
0: Oh, that is devastating. So you've got a desk job now, but prior to that, you've got 25 years field experience on islands, boats, and pretty much everything in between. Tell me about one of your weirdest days at work.
1: i It's really hard to pick one. I've, I've had lots of weird days at work. I am... Um... It's going down the sub-antarctics a few years ago and we had the we were taking Nick Smith and Gareth Morgan and Sam Morgan and and we were on the Navy trip and we hit this massive storm where we, it was sort of like 25 meter seas and they were breaking over the front of the boat and and the boat couldn't turn around because it was because um, the wind and the waves were too big for it so we were just trucking slowly towards Tasmania while we waited and in the middle of all that um, most of the crew were sick so they only had a skeleton crew on with the Navy. And then um and then the fire alarm went off and um, they thought there was a fire on board and all the crew so the crew that they could muster were going in there what had happened was one of the extinguishers had been smashed across the room and gone off inside the inside the area it was so but all the alarms went off and they were in there doing that and in the midst of all this chaos um I, w- I went up to the bridge and was sitting on the bridge and in the midst of this chaos of humans in the southern ocean barely surviving this pot of dolphins Swam past us, just happy as anything, in their element, and I just, and I suddenly you re- sat there, realizing that oh my gosh, this is um, we don't belong here. It's just <laughs> like we're doing it wrong. Yeah, they're they doing it right. <laughs> so.
0: Oh, that's pretty cool. Tell me another one. I'll
1: tell you another one. You. Um, so actually, when you encounter wildlife, creates some really weird days at work for you. And I remember once I was the duty officer on Stewart Island, and I got a call from the policeman late that night. Um, that there was a sea lion on the road and so I uh, I had to go out and help him get the sea lion off the road which in Stewart Island it's there's not much traffic so it's not a, a big issue but the um, but it's a black sea lion on a section of road with no lights or anything on it so it's just this big dark lump in the middle of the road so it, it could have caused a bit of damage. So I got round there and hopped out of the truck and um, I took my brother with me so my brother and the policeman were standing there, and it was quite a big sea lion. It was one of those big males, about 300, 350 kilos. Not scary at all. Not scary at all. And so I said I asked who wanted to help me, but they weren't that keen. So they both sat in the truck watching. And um I got to move sea lions. You gotta know what sea lions do. Like they're um they're quite they're quite big, but they don't they don't eat you. Like they're not that you're not their prey. So I took a stick and I was just tapping him on the side with a stick to try to be annoying enough that he would move, just a little tap. Well, it didn't hurt him. Um, so eventually, he got really tired of me and he jumped up. And he's about, probably about my height. And when he raised himself up and charged me, but they always stop when they get to you. So, so I was just standing there, and he stopped about, you know, half a meter short, and flopped down again. So I just kept tapping him again and really <laughs> winding him up. And eventually, after a few sort of barks and and carrying on, he he huffed across the road because he was just couldn't rest there. I wasn't letting him rest. So he was completely, completely sick of me. Um, so I got him off the road, back on the beach, and left him in peace, which was great. And then I um, turned around and went back to the truck, and the and the policeman and my brother are both sitting there, wide eyed, jaw slack. <laughs> what
0: on earth did you do? Oh my gosh! <laughs> so, How do you know that it's not gonna? That it's going to stop?
1: Oh, it's... Just cool. from past experience. Just experience, just experience. it so, must be
0: quite a first experience. Yeah, no, it's well, there's, there's... I've been told it's going to stop.
1: <laughs> there's thousands of sea lions on the sub-Antarctic. Um, and on Stuart Island, there's is a new population down in Pegasus as well. So it was one of the things I learned from one of my colleagues when we were sea lion monitoring down there. Would, um, you could just walk, you know, every time they... The worst thing people do is they run away from them because then it becomes like a game and yeah. the sea lions chase them. So, but if you just stay still, they'll... They'll they'll stop before they get to you. It's all bluff and buster.
0: If you come across a sea lion, please don't prod it with a stick like Brent Bevan did in order to get it off the road. But stand twenty metres away from it and enjoy it from a distance. I've also heard another not safe for home kind of story that you stood on a sea lion once. Yeah,
1: oh, absolutely. That's um, and you're right, kids. Please don't do this at home. This is. This is a sort of this. this is, I'm a professional and I know <laughs> what I'm doing around sea lions, but Poor but, but I, I had to purposely annoy it. So it's better people, um, people stand back and give them space and let them let them lead their own lives. But I was, I was on Campbell Island one day and there's lots of sea lions on Campbell Island, you know, it's just there's lots and but there's also really high tussock. And we were we had transferred teal down to Campbell Island and I was moving them. We Taking the box and carrying them over to Northwest Bay to release them over at that bay, and you get to the top looking down on Northwest, and it's beautiful. But there's this big tussock slope rolling down, and um, everyone else was really scared of sea lions, so they were all behind me and and they were all hidden through the tussock. So you're um, so you're sort of slowly making your way down, but I, but the, to give you a bit more of a concept, the tussock came up to about my chin, so we're walking through like that, trying to see what happens, and I and I was sort of Felt the ground change underneath me, and I and I got two steps on this quite squishy bit of ground when it moved, and I suddenly realised that I'd just walked up the back of a sea lion, and um, thankfully, it was um it was facing away from me, and it got as big a fright as I did because it took off at hundred miles an hour, and I found the new new reverse gear and got backwards really really quickly, and so thankfully because we were both really scared, it was fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so not one, but two steps on a sea two line. steps
1: onto a sea line. Just
0: yeah. Well, wow. Know. What do you do? Prodding with sticks and standing on sea lines aside, is is there another time perhaps that uh, everything hasn't gone quite right in the field?
1: Yeah, I, I mean it's part and parcel of the work. As is, is things go wrong occasionally, I do I do try. And
0: that's not a user issue.
1: We do try not to have things go wrong, and and because uh, if you're in a really remote spot, they can. Um, that can be a bit fatal, so we so we're very very careful in how we go about things. It's, I mean, I, I've got a positive story of things going to that didn't quite go right that Fantastic. I'll test you. I was catching right
0: now, you're sounding like a cowboy. <laughs>
1: yeah, I was out on I was out on Breaksea Island um, catching Mohua for a transfer to Fenuaho uh, a few years ago, which was um, quite a cool job. Breaksea was the was one of the it was the first island they made predator-free in New Zealand, um, the first big island. They did Mariah Island, which is a small one, but this was the first structured, baited, um, ground-baited approach to doing it. And it's really steep. It's quite an amazing island in Fiordland. And the wildlife on it is phenomenal. So we can we can go in and, and actually catch some of the birds and take them off to repopulate other spots. There's so many. So I was catching a mohua or yellowhead on the island and we'd struggled for days. And it was... I. I was on top of the island and we'd only had 15 birds and the helicopter was coming and you normally want 30 to 50 to try to start a population. And we we was on the top of the island and with 15 minutes to go till we called it quits and the helicopter arrived, I caught 30 mohoa in one go. So they were in the net and they were everywhere. So i the only problem was I didn't expect that and there was only me and I um, and I didn't have enough catch bags, so I, I I filled up all my catch bags. So we put the birds into little bags that protect them, and that way we can transport them and carry them down to to then put them in a box to move them to another island. So I was um, so I took my socks off and I stuffed bow her of my socks, and I um, tied my sleeves up on my raincoat and put both her the raincoat and every off every little pocket and everything I could do I had filled with moha and then I had to line them in my pack and tie them around the pack and hold them because was you can't hold 30 catch bags by yourself so I had everything lined up and then I and the radio wasn't working because the island's so steep you couldn't connect across it so so the helicopter had come in by this point and they were all down there and I'm desperately stuffing all these birds with bags and folding could, the net up shooing <laughs> other birds away go away <laughs> And I got them all stuffed in and then I had to go down. It's a very steep track. It's like 45 degrees of so th- these 30 birds and pockets and backs and socks. And, Don't
0: fall and over. And I got,
1: I got down the, the bottom, just got the radio connection in time to make them hold and they and they held the chopper. Mm-hmm. We got them all out, banded them, put them in the boxes and, you know, it was about 30, 40 minutes later than anticipated but then we got them all away and we had a good population.
0: And they successfully... Started a new population.
1: We successfully started a new population on Fenuaoho, so Fenuaoho or Codfish Islands, where all the kakapo are. Mm-hmm. Another, another site. where, you know, you get rid of predators, you can have kakapo and more mm, wildlife. And harder to like stuff that. in
0: your jacket. Yeah,
1: they are a bit but... harder to stuff in your jacket, but I'd give it a go.
0: Wow, <laughs> I'm sure people have. So you've had many conservation successes throughout your experience, 25 years, um, but can you think of one that that tops the heap? What's your greatest conservation story?
1: Oh, that's um, that's a tough question. It is, the, a tough question. is a tough question. In a bizarre way, the greatest conservation success I had was leaving Stewart Island. Um, and it sounds a bit odd, but I I had been a I'd been on Stewart Island for sixteen years, um, managing the wildlife and nature down there. And I was the I had been a huge advocate for um, a predator free Stewart Island. We'd been working on that for all, all of those 16 years and um, and what I'd what I'd failed to recognize was that it had um, I'd got too tied into it and and I had the ownership of it and so therefore the community didn't and when I left which i shy it was simply because of the, you know the department got restructured and roles changed and I got another role based out of a managing Stewart Island in the sub antarctic when I left and was stepped out of that place um, the community took it over, and the ownership shifted away from me to the community. And now, this year, it's done so well that we um, we've funded a million dollars into Stewart Island to do the operational planning for how will we go about achieving predator free rakiora. So, so it's sometimes you know the the thing that's put in front of you doesn't look like success at the time, but the way it pans out is actually actually really positive.
0: That's fantastic. So it's like you passed the the charger over. You're not just in there on the white charger fixing everything. You've handed it to the community and they get to do it.
1: Yeah, and it's a, it's it's a real lesson for me in how we approach Predator Free because it has it has to be owned by the communities at place and they have to be driving what they want to see happen there. So we've built that right into the DNA of our, of our strategy and how we approach it and how we want to do things.
0: Right, yeah, because it can't just be, DOC can't just fix it. It has to take everyone. It's going to take everyone.
1: I, I think that's a real story of the change in conservation over the last um, 20 years from when I started. When I started in conservation, it was very much DOC, you know we're the experts. We do this work, and this is what we want to do. But there's a limit to how much conservation you can do in that place. And I, and over those twenty years I've been playing in this field, the change of ownership to the communities and and iwi and hapu and everyone being involved is just is really growing um, the amount of work that can be done. And and I, I sit in the space where. We have got to get communities involved to get that um to get that buy in and that and that understanding and that commitment to trying to protect this the special this special wildlife that's ours to look after.
0: So, do you think? Um, I mean, New Zealand does have this social capital around predator free. Why do you think that is?
1: I, I think it's because it's really gettable.
0: Like I I work like understandable or achievable.
1: Understandable. I mean, it's it's both, but it's the first time i've I've had a I've had a thing I'm working towards within conservation that people immediately understand. Uh, when I used to talk about ecosystem services, mm-hmm. you had to take ten minutes explaining it to everyone, and it was just so challenging. And now you're in this place where I go, oh, we're doing predator free, and people go, oh, I get that, yeah. and they also also get what they can do to contribute towards it. And it's, it's really quite intuitive and easy and they, and people get on board and it's such a good goal. It
0: is such a good no. goal. Was there a moment that you saw that solidify in front of you in terms of the community taking over?
1: Yeah, there, well, there was a couple on, there was a couple of moments on Stewart Island that, um, that particularly, particularly stand out in my mind. One was the, was I talked about Kiwi re, returning Kiwi to, um, the township and, um, and it took a bit of time for people to to grasp what was happening there. And we used to have lots of roaming dogs, so it was a real struggle to to deal with because roaming dogs just take out all your kiwi. And um, as soon as we sort of got that under control a little bit and put kiwi in place, that the, the community forced the dog ownership issue out because they want a kiwi in their backyard. It's not someone else's dog. So they, um, So the social pressure suddenly... Changed completely and, and reframed how that operated. And I, I was down there last year and I went into the pub and ran into a whole lot of people I knew from the time I lived there. And um, and they were all telling me Kiwi stories. Like they're all going, Oh, I saw four Kiwi in my backyard the other day. And this is all on. I got sick of it. I wanted to talk about something else. But everyone <laughs> was coming up to me <laughs> talking about Kiwi. And I think the other one I. The other example I saw which was really strong on Stewart Island was when we when we had rats come back onto Olver Island. So Olver Island's a predator-free island in Paterson It's really accessible. If you're going to Stuart Island, you should go to Over Island. Beautiful spot. and full of wildlife. And um, and we got rats back on and we got a population of rats and we had to um we had to get well we had we had to do, do another eradication to to try to get rid of them. Um and it was the shift from the community been quite indifferent about over 20, 30 years ago when it was a special place to go, but eh, to um to actually driving in behind and really advocating to get... Because they, they valued that wildlife. They valued those animals It was part of their upbringing, where they went, what they wanted, and what was special to them. But it was also actually a key part of the economy on Stewart <laughs> Island because um, so many the, the guided walks had grown, the number of people, the water taxis. So... So they really swung in behind and had that sense. It was the ownership of the place that I really recognised at that point. And I think that was the swing away from it being a dock island Mm -hmm. to it actually, this is our island as a community.
0: And they knew what the value was because they'd seen what they could have there.
1: Oh, yeah, they'd seen it, breathed it, ate it, heard it, smelt (laughs) it. You know, it's... it's a very uh, tangible thing.
0: Is is rat incursion likely to happen again? Is it close to Stewart Island or Yeah, it's with
1: it's within swimming distance. So a um, Norway rat can swim um over a kilometre. So they're um they cunning little critters. They're a worthy challenge, but they're um the 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 island is, is now got a much better infrastructure on it. So they've got traps everywhere on that island that try to capture animals as they come on. But you know, over time we'll get better and better. The investment we've got in Predator Free is starting to bring out new tools, new technology, new ways of detecting things, new ways of making sure you get rid of them really quickly. So mm-hmm. so this should become easier. And as we get onto the mainland sites, and if we do the whole of Stewart Island, then invading rats onto over won't be an issue. Yeah.
0: Something that's hard for us to think about is the seriousness of the threat to most species. But we are actually in dire straits. Um, we've got 43 species of birds that have gone extinct in the last Eight hundred years. The reality is that a lot of them are at some kind of risk. You've talked about the treadmill of temporary control and that B A U approach not being what we can do anymore. What places or species are you really worried about at the moment?
1: I'm worried about them all. That's that's part of the problem. There, all of our species evolved in the absence of um, of most mammals. The only mammals that were on New Zealand were were seals, sea lions, and bats. So the thing about mammals is they hunt. With um, scent, so they smell things. You know, watch dogs or cats hunting. Sight and scent are really mm. important, and they so they can track things and track them down and eat them. When you're when you've evolved, with your only predator being an, an eagle or a, or a moorpork or something like that, then you then then you freeze because they're hunting by sight, so you stay still and you camouflage. So you look at our native animals, and most of them, you know, the kiwi, the kakapo, they're um. They're really well camouflaged and they fit into their environment and are almost invisible. Now, unfortunately, if that's your strategy and you freeze and an animal's hunting by scent and smell, then they. They just got no defence, you know. They you're making it
0: easier for them. Yeah, they, here I
1: am. They are. and the poor things just—they're not evolved for that, and so they—they they don't stand a chance. It's not the only equilibrium that ever is going to get reached in New Zealand if we if we just step back, is um, we will lose those things and we will get lots of rats and possums and things like that. So we need to take action, otherwise those things are going to die out. So, can I pick a species? No, no, they're all—they're all valuable. They're all part of our identity. They're all—they're all. They're all Ours as New Zealanders, and they're ours to look after. And if we lose them, they they're gone. They're gone from the world. You know? And
0: and even if you lose one, it can have such a devastating effect, right?
1: Yeah. I, well, for lots of them, we just don't know what they. You know, we don't know what that'll be. We oh. don't. We don't know what its potential is in the future. But also, you lose its role within the forest and or within the whatever wherever it lives, and that'll have impacts and will have flow on. So, mm-hmm. but it's not just extinction. You know, we often think about losing. Um, You know, losing those animals, and that's the end of it. But it's the loss of that genetic diversity is really bad as well. So you imagine when we used to have millions and millions of kaka all over New Zealand. You know, that we used to have yellow ones and white ones and red ones, and you know, there's this massive amount of genetic diversity, and then we've narrowed it down to quite a few. So we've lost a lot of their resilience, so their ability to respond to things like climate change or um diseases that come into the country their ability to respond is really limited because of that loss of genetic diversity so it's not about totally gone it's even getting to low numbers is really bad
0: okay so that that genetic bottleneck creates just if if one extra thing that cumulative effect of say climate change say something that that can just have a devastating effect
1: yeah well you imagine it if you imagine a population of humans, you imagine everyone you know and you and you say actually we've we've got some horrible thing happen to the planet and there's only going to be five of us left to repopulate the planet. Well you're going to get quite a different sort of um, group of people evolve out of that and their ability to respond to things is going to be really different. so that's what happens with those birds and um, geckos and lizards and everything else as well, then you get down. Low numbers, then their resilience is really low. The black robin's a great example. You know, it got down to what was it, seven birds at some point, and one, you know, one female basically repopulated everything by herself. But, um, but they're actually. Their breeding is really slow now compared to other birds. They they produce very few offspring, and that's just a, that's just an offspring of or a offshoot of having very low genetic diversity.
0: Is that comparatively to how they used to be? So they used to breed what a clutch every year or something. Yeah. Oh, and less?
1: New Zealand robins on the mainland can produce three clutches, and you know they can each have three or four chicks in them. So mm-hmm. and these guys are only producing a very small number of individuals. Okay. The same with um, saddleback. So oh, tiki, they were the South Island tiki were on. Um, it got down to thirty individuals on one island, and we did some genetic work on on those birds all oh, about ten years ago now. They're almost identical. Every, you know, we've got thousands of them now on lots of um, offshore islands again, predator free islands. Mm-hmm. You can have tiki on them, but you can't have them anywhere where there's rats or stoats or possums. But they just can't survive. Yeah. Um, but these birds, are, they're almost identical. Now, if you get a, you get a disease or you get a, a drought or you get some other factor coming in like climate change that'll, that'll cause variations in their habitat, their ability to survive is really limited because they just don't have the diversity. Yeah, they can't adapt as easily. They can't adapt as easily.
0: So our predator problem is largely a product of colonisation, right? It's, it's not all predators came with European settlers, but ship rats and mustelids did. What, what can we learn from that?
1: Colonisation has caused this problem. Um, it was we, and it was the mindset of the time as well that you know you just you brought you brought a bit of old England across to settle it into the new country. The
0: British of the south, that's what they wanted ah, to create.
1: Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> that was the, and that's you know you can't look back and blame them. They were just that was the mindset of the day, and they were trying to they were trying to set up something that they were comfortable with. But gosh, the impact on the country has been phenomenal, and. Why do we end up with stoats and ferrets to control rabbits? Which is, uh, you know, it's like a, a lady
0: eating the fly kind of mentality. Oh, and it
1: and it's also flies in the face of ecology because because um, it's not it's not predators that control prey. It's it's funny enough it's prey that controls predators. And you got to think of it like lions on the Serengeti, as like the lion numbers are dictated by the number of zebras. The zebra numbers aren't aren't, <laughs> aren't dictated by the number of lions. Yeah. So. So yeah, it's food supply that dictates animal numbers, and that's and that's where we go. So that, that's a bit of an aside. So it's always prey that dictates predator numbers. Yeah. So we we've got all these species as a byproduct of colonization, and the, and the use mentality that went went with that. So possums were brought over for fur, you know, mm-hmm. so we put the it didn't really matter about the impact because there was an industry we could set up and run. And I think we're probably on the cusp of moving to quite a different sort of mentality. It's quite a it's quite a how do human it's humans recognizing themselves as part of nature and intrinsically linked to the systems of the earth that are supported by nature.
0: And that kind of reciprocity yeah. of the land.
1: Well I think yeah. we see that with, with the climate change issues as well. You know, we're causing them and and that's impacting on the planet. And then impacting back on on us as people so so we've got to get into this very new space where we where we think of ourselves as part of the system and we have a much more um much more aligned with with the maori world view that we um that, that we're part of it and we have to look after it because it's our life supporting system so
0: and you've you've talked about kaitiakitanga in terms of we we need the science and innovation for predator free but you're also looking back over centuries and and the customary values. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we're trying to really build that into how we're working. And and I, I do love that idea in Maridom that the that we're related to everything, that we whakapapa to, to not just the land but the creatures, you know, that are our, our whānau yeah. around us. So that, and, and that relates to science because if you follow everything back genetically, we, we all do link at some point. Mm. So there's, there is some science sitting behind that. That that concept and that idea, yeah. but if you think of that idea that well, gosh these are our brothers and sisters and things we we're related to, yeah. then maybe it just gives you a bit more of a drive to get connected to we'll it,
0: take better care of it. Yeah, as well.
1: <laughs> and I do like you know the that um, matauranga, really it's the knowledge of that's been in an environment for six hundred years, so it can can tell us about patterns of behaviour or things that have been observed or gosh you, when you when you setting out on a, on a journey like Predator Free, you want to grab as much knowledge and understanding as you can. And, and I think it would be silly to ignore offerings from anyone at this point in time.
0: So is Predator Free 2050 possible? Can we do it?
1: Of course we can. Of course we can. The, um, we've, we've mapped it all out. So the strategy breaks us into sort of any, a number of functional pathways and, and we've logic mapped them to death. So we can we know what we have to do now to set us up to be in the place to deliver predator-free in 2050. And, and it's just really, te- it's the technical issues and we can solve those. They're not, they're not a challenge. Oh, well, they're a challenge, but, but they're easy to, you know, you get engineers involved, you get um, scientists involved. And if you get the focus on it, you can really shift our technology into the right, right place. The, the bit that is the harder challenge is the people. So it's the social issues and the understanding and getting people on board and, and, and the understanding that we might have to go onto their land or change their lifestyle slightly, or you know, so it's always a there's always a social element that is much more challenging than the technical element. But if the people buy into it, we can solve those technical issues. There's no problems about that.
0: Since Brent had so many great stories, we cut his interview into a bumper two part episode. In part two, we'll be talking about innovations like AI and smart devices, sensor pads, infrared cameras, and long-life lures. Plus, we're also taking on the tougher topics, 1080, feral cats, and how we keep our staff safe. Part two will be out next month. Subscribe so you don't miss it.